uh, what would you do uh, in this situation? Imagine you have a Christian friend who they come to you because they're, they're struggling with, with a particular sin. They, they know it's wrong. They also are aware, they know that they live out of their hearts, that is, that they embrace the Bible's teaching, that the reason why they do what they do is because they're, of what they're treasuring in their hearts. And they know that, that they sin as a result of treasuring something other than Jesus. Indeed, this friend comes to you and says that they've even confessed their sin to God. Not only that, they also have expressed godly sorrow over their sin. Not, not worldly sorrow, but they've expressed godly sorrow. And yet, they come to you because they still give in to their sin when tempted. Be it anger or lust, worry, pride, bitterness, or, or self-control. So they come to you and they ask you for help. You don't have to say it out loud, but what would you say to him or her? Uh, imagine you have another friend. However, their struggle isn't necessarily with a particular sin, but with suffering hardship because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Because they want to be obedient to Jesus, they find themselves experiencing hostility in the workplace because of their faith. Their family is antagonistic towards them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they come to you and they just confess to you that they're just weary and discouraged. In fact, in a moment of honesty, they confess to you that they, they just feel like throwing in the towel. That is, they're considering turning away from their commitment to Christ. Again, you don't have to say it out loud, but I, I would, and I ask you, what would you say to him or her? You have, you have one friend who's struggling with a besetting sin, in it, and they seem to be doing everything correctly, but they still give way to it. And you have another friend who, in obedience to Jesus, wants to live a faithful life, but is just growing weary of the constant antagonism or the constant attacks on their faith. What would you say to him or her? Have you ever given those situations some thoughts? Perhaps you have. Indeed, I wonder if you've given it some thought, not because someone has come to you and asked you those questions, but because you have those very questions yourself. In a room this size, I have no doubt that some of you are struggling with a besetting sin. Indeed, I have no doubt that some of you are perhaps weary of the hardships you're experiencing as a result of following Jesus. And you yourself, you have those very questions on your mind. That is, you're looking for help. 
So here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is, what is needed for you and what is needed for me to live for Jesus in the face of temptation, in the very moment when temptation comes upon you? What is needed for you and I to endure and remain faithful to Christ when inconvenience, when suffering, when hardship comes upon us because we pledge allegiance to Jesus? What are we to do in these moments to remain faithful? And I, and I ask these questions because they're the very questions that the author of Hebrews wants to answer. You see, as we've discussed before, the primary audience for this letter, the book of Hebrews, they were Jewish believers. And due to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, many of them were suffering. They suffered rejection by family members. We see this in chapter 13. Others of them experienced public shame. We see this in chapter 10. Some of them suffered the loss of property or freedom, as well as the threat of martyrdom in chapter 12. Indeed, as we continue to work our way through this book, we're also going to discover that many of them struggled with sin and temptation. And friend, I want to suggest to you that God's Word is not only helpful with matters of the heart, but it also gives us practical life-giving counsel to help us in our time of need. Moments, moments of need that the original readers had and moments of need that we experience today as well. So, so how can we endure? What is needed for you and I to live for Jesus when tempted to give way to sin? What is needed for you and I to live for Jesus when it will cost us greatly? Well, if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 3. That's page 1002 in that paperback Bible. But to get the context, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start reading back in, verse, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. And, and as we're, we're reading this, I just want you to consider how this would have landed on the ears of the original readers. You know, people like you and I who are struggling with a certain sin. People like you and I who might be suffering for our faith. And listen to what he says to them. And what an encouragement this would have been. He, he begins there in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, referring to Jesus, Therefore Jesus, he, had to be made like his brothers... In every respect, that is, Jesus was not partially human or mainly human, but fully human. He had to take on human flesh. The eternal, divine sin of God had to be my like us in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And what was this service? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is, because of what Christ has done, God's wrath towards us for our sin is done away with. And then he goes on to say this about Jesus. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, 
He is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. What good news. But he goes on. So drawing upon the, the, the wonderful blessing, provision God has given us in Jesus Christ as our faithful and good high priest, drawing upon that reality, the author then says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, listen to what he calls us to do. He invites us to do this. He says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And what do we learn about Jesus? What should we consider about him? Verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. God's house is referring to the people of God. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Have you ever heard of Dr. Aaron Beck? Dr. Beck is the founder of a commonly practiced therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. Have you ever heard of that before? Maybe some of us? Beck developed it back in the 1960s. And cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, as I'll be referring to it. <laughs> it focuses on the way people think and act in order to help them with their emotional and behavioral problems. So cognitive behavioral therapy, is a, it's a common type of talk therapy, right? You, you work with a mental health counselor, a psychotherapist or a therapist in a structured way, attending a limited number of sessions. And the, and the claim of CBT is that it helps you become aware of, please hear me, inaccurate or negative thinking so you can view challenging situations more clearly and respond to them in a more effective way. So several years ago, I had a woman come to me for biblical counseling after she had spent time with a cognitive behavioral therapist. And she was struggling with anxiety and the reason why she first sought out a cognitive behavioral therapist is because she thought cognitive behavioral therapy would be much more practical and much more helpful to her in her moment of struggle. So, for example, when she would begin to feel stressed or really anxious, her therapist told her that what you need to do, okay, when you, when you feel anxiety, when you feel overwhelmed, her therapist said what you need to do is, is focus on a setting 
or a location that, that you find relaxing, like a sunset or a beach. And just focus on that sunset or a beach. And after focusing on that for a while, you'll find relief from your anxiety. Or she would say, or when you're ready to give way to anger, the therapist told her to, to focus something like on the room in the moment. And after a short time, the urge to get angry would go away. Yet while such counsel helped her for a little bit, the woman found it lacking. So she comes to me, and when she came to me, she was doubtful that God's word provided any practical counsel to help her. In fact, she asked me, she said this, she's like, when I'm feeling anxious, Aaron, or when I'm tempted to give way to sin, does the Bible give any guidance, these are her words, as to where to direct my focus? <laughs> to which I gladly replied, yes. The Bible actually has a lot to say about where we are to direct our thoughts in moment of hardship and temptation. And then I looked her in the eyes and I said, friend, far greater than the beach, far greater than a sunset, the Bible calls us to set our minds on our great and glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we're to fix our gaze. That's what we're to contemplate. That's what we're to consider in the moment. Tell me, what does the author of Hebrews invite his readers to do in chapter 3, verse 1? Remember, he's writing to believers who, like you and like me, they're struggling with sin. They're suffering for our faith. So what counsel does the author give? Tell me, what does he invite us to do? Consider. Consider who? Jesus. He invites us to consider Jesus. The very Jesus who in the verse before... Verse 17 and 18 is able to help those who are tempted. And notice, what is it about Jesus we are to consider? We could say it like this. Very clearly, the author wants us to consider why Jesus is worthy of more glory. Consider why Jesus... Our great high priest is worthy of more glory. And I left it just like that for a reason. Because you can fill in the blank of whatever you'd like to after that. Consider why Jesus is worthy of more glory than your job, than your spouse, than a romantic relationship, children, food, health, or as we're about to see, Moses. Faith, consider why Jesus alone ought to bear the most weight in your life. The truth is, please hear me, friend, we all are ascribing worth and value to something. We are constantly giving weight to things, be it a job, as I mentioned, a certain lifestyle, children, wealth. And most often, actually, most often, you know what it is we ascribe the most worth and value to? Ourselves. We consider ourselves, our wants, our wishes, our desires worthy of bearing the most weight in our lives. That is, we find it to be worthy of the most glory. 
Yet here comes the author of Hebrews. And what does he invite us to do? He invites us to consider why Jesus is worthy of more glory than all those things. And faith, I plead with you. If you want to fight sin, if you want to remain faithful and endure suffering for your faith, then you must, please hear me, you must consider and fully believe why Jesus is more worthy to live for than anything else this world has to offer, including the person in the mirror. I mean, take for a moment uh, that besetting sin in your life, whatever it might be for you. Anger, pride, lust, envy, jealousy, lack of self-control, whatever it might be. My guess is you know it's wrong. My guess is you know you have an evil treasure. Indeed, my guess is you've probably confessed that evil treasure to God and repented of it. Yet can I ask, and this is where I want to lean in this morning, yet can I ask, in your repentance... Have you considered why Jesus is a far greater treasure to live for than that which you've previously esteemed in your heart? Have you allowed your hearts to contemplate the great worth of your Savior? And the reason why I ask this is because many Christians fail to do exactly this. This is what they do. On the heels of confession, yes, I know that was wrong. I agree with God that it was wrong. I have godly sorrow. I know it's because I have an evil treasure in my heart. In the heels of confessing, what they then do is then they run to putting on the good commands of God and praise the Lord. They should do that. Yet they skip over a critical step. Once you confess to God and own your sin, on your way to then put on the good commands of God, you must resolve you must consider, you must give contemplation to why Jesus is worthy to live for. Why is he great? Why is he glorious? Why is he worthy of more glory? Because if you don't answer that question, you're going to go back to the sin. You're going to consider that worthy of more pleasure and honor and glory than Jesus. I mean... So Christian, when you're tempted to give way to sinful anger or to look at something you're not supposed to on the internet or when you're tempted to lie to your boss or lie to your spouse or lie to your parents, consider why Jesus is more worthy to live for than yourself. Consider how your great high priest stands ready to help you when tempted. I mean, <laughs> what if we actually did this? <laughs> Right? What if in your moment of sexual temptation, what if in your moment of despair, what if in your moment of anxiety, instead of focusing on a sunset or a beach, you actually did what the author of Hebrews invites you to do, and that is to consider Jesus. What if you made it your aim to consider why Jesus is worthy, why he is glorious, why he must be the object I live for rather than anything else. Could you imagine the fruit that the Holy Spirit would produce if we did this? Can you imagine how much deeper and sweeter your relationship with Christ would be? 
Indeed, you know what you'd be able to experience in those moments? You'd be able to experience what Jesus promises there in verse 17. In verse 18, rather. Namely, his help when you are tempted. Who, who wouldn't want that? And please notice, to show the brilliance and majesty of Jesus... Look carefully what the author does. Notice, he introduces someone in the Old Testament who has ascribed much glory. And who is that person? Tell me. Moses. Several years ago, during the Winter Olympics, comedian Bill Murray said this. He said, every Olympic event should include one average person competing for reference, right? (laughs) Every Olympic event should include one average person competing for reference. In many ways, Moses functions in the same manner. Moses is not the point of this text. Rather, please hear me, he's a point of reference to show why Jesus is worthy of all glory. I mean, the author is taking the the goat of the Old Testament to show why Jesus is worthy of more glory. Now, to be sure... The author of Hebrews does not argue for the superiority of Jesus by denigrating Moses as the mediator of the Old Covenant. On the contrary, as I just read, Moses, you'll notice, Moses is praised, and rightly so is God's servant. Yet despite Moses' greatness, he's not the terminus and goal of God's revelation. Rather, he's simply a pointer to something better, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look closely at this text, we will notice that the author cites four reasons why Jesus is worthy of more glory. More glory than Moses, or I'm going to suggest anything else that beckons your allegiance away from Jesus. And again, Faith, I'd really invite you to consider And to contemplate why Jesus is worthy of more glory. Why he's worthy to live for rather than myself. I invite you to have your hearts filled and be satisfied and happy and joyous. As we consider who our God is, who our Savior is. So first Christian, consider how Jesus is God's revealer. And I'm getting this from the phrase apostle there in verse 1. Notice what the author writes. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus as the main command for the entire, these, these six verses. Consider Jesus, and notice what he says about Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So first, consider why Jesus is God's revealer. Hockey season is here. Amen? Amen? I can mean it. Uh, One of my uh, all-time favorite ESPN hockey commercials has to do with the mascot for the New Jersey Devils. Perhaps you've you've seen it before. As As you might have guessed... The mascot for the New Jersey Devils is a what? The devil. Well, the commercial commercial begins with an employee at ESPN 
uh, going to the elevator, waiting for the elevator doors to open. And when the elevator doors open, he walks in, and when he walks in the doors, who does he see standing there? But he sees the mascot for the New Jersey Devils, the New Jersey Devil. And then he looks at the New Jersey Devil, and he naturally asks, he says, going up? <laughs> to which the New Jersey Devil just shakes his head, no. You know what happens next? The employee then runs out of the elevator before the doors close, right? But can you blame him? Right? I mean, who, who wants to go down with the devil, even if it is a mascot in an elevator, right? Notice what the author says about Christians in verse 1. Because of the work of Christ, in addition to being holy, that is, set apart for God, the author states that as Christians, we are partakers of a heavenly calling. Outside of God saving us, all of us, in one sense, we were on an elevator with the devil, destined for hell due to our sins. Yet in Christ... We're not going to the bottom floor, praise him. No, but in Christ, we've received a heavenly calling. It's a heavenly calling in that it comes from heaven and it culminates in heaven. That is, the initiative comes from God and it leads us back to God in heaven. And what, and what good news. Let's again just ponder this. Christian, are you discouraged are you weary? You have a heavenly calling. From heaven, God has called you and sought you out, and the call returns back to heaven. He's, he has saved you, and you have a future with God for all eternity. Amen? Indeed, as we're about to see, the author of Hebrews uses the word heavenly more than any other New Testament author. He uses it Six times in this book. He really likes the word. <laughs> Yet while the author frequently uses the word heavenly, he also uses a word, interestingly enough, that is never applied to Jesus in the Bible except here in chapter 3, verse 1. And can you guess what that word is? Apostle. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is called an apostle. Now as the author of Hebrews has just developed in the previous chapter, the eternal divine Son of God took on human flesh. Right? Jesus became like us. What does the text say there in verse 17? In every respect. Jesus was not mainly human or partially human. No, he was fully human. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. And as several commentators have pointed out, Apostle literally means one who is sent. An apostle is one who is sent, one who is sent who is also under authority. Now think with me for a moment. Think of how often Jesus spoke of being sent by the Father in the Gospel of John. It's all over the place. And what was Jesus sent to do. Right? In his own words, Jesus states 
that he came to reveal the Father to us and to accomplish the Father's purpose, which was to redeem us by the shedding of his blood, right? Indeed, did not Jesus say that he did nothing on his own initiative, but sought the will of the one who sent him? So, why is Jesus more worthy of glory than Moses, who also was sent by God to speak to God's people? Why is Jesus worthy of more glory than your job or your own wants, wishes, and desires? You know why? Because we cannot know God except through Jesus. Jesus is God's revealer. He's the one sent to reveal the Father and the Father's purposes. And friend, I would invite you, when tempted to sin, when tempted to despair, consider this truth about Jesus. A beach sounds great. Of course, I don't like the beach, I don't like the sand, but maybe for some of you, you like the beach. But you know what's even better than that? The fact that I can know God through Jesus. So when I'm tempted to look at something I ought not look, when I'm tempted to fear when I ought not fear, when I'm tempted to get angry when I ought not get angry, let me remember, let us remember that Jesus is worthy to live for in this moment because I can know God through him. Praise him. Not only know God through him, but I have a heavenly calling. But then second, Jesus is worthy of more glory because he is God's reconciler. And I'm getting this from that phrase, high priest. What he says there in verse 1. Therefore, well, let's go back to, to verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being suffered, who are being tempted rather, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is God's reconciler. So, it's late at night, and you are all alone at home and your phone is right next to you, your phone that has access to all sorts of temptations. How does this passage help you in that moment? Or you're, let's take this, you're visiting extended family. You're interacting with all sorts of cousins, aunts, and uncles. We come from a large family. When we get, there's tons of people, right? You're visiting with family, but some of these extended family members, can you imagine this? I'm just going to see if you can imagine this. Some of these family members might really be getting on your nerves. Is this, is this foreign to all of us? Is this, a, is, this, is this not connecting, right? Okay. And maybe one of them, you just want to rip into them because they're irritating you so much. How does this passage help you in that moment? I want to suggest to you that this passage offers you extraordinary help. Christian, have you considered what good news it is that Jesus has reconciled you to God? You know what that means? It means that as your great high priest, Jesus, please hear me, has satisfied, 
God's just wrath for your sins. On the cross, Jesus offered up himself to make propitiation for your sins. And here's the thought I invite you to consider the next time temptation comes upon you. The next time you're tempted to get angry at a family member. The next time you're tempted to get angry at a boss. The next time you're tempted to look at something you ought not to or give way to fear and anxiety. Here's the thought I want you to consider, and that's this. If God hates sin so much, if God hates sin so much that it took the death of His Son to satisfy His righteous wrath, why would you be willing to participate in something that God hates so much and that your Savior had to die to deliver you from? Consider that, that truth about Jesus in the moment. Have you considered what it fully means that Jesus is God's reconciler? Indeed, do you see why Jesus is worthy of more glory than anything this world has to offer you, including you? The person and work of Jesus are the only means by which we can be reconciled to God. What a glorious thought to consider, especially in our moments of temptation, especially in our moments of need. But that's not all. And we're, 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 it's coming. It's landing, please. Notice also how Jesus is God's reliable builder. So look at verses 2 through 4. So referring to Jesus, who is faithful to him, that is God the Father, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Moses did a great job. He's commended. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, I have a confession to share with you. I, I don't know about you, but whenever, whenever I hear the, the word or the name Moses, I cannot help but think, from that, think about that scene in the movie Singing in the Rain when Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor begin to sing to the speech dictation coach. Does anyone remember that scene? Yes, okay. Remember how the song goes, right? Moses supposes his toes are roses. Moses supposes... Three people know it. <laughs> people, you need to get cultured. You have not seen... Singing in the rain, right? Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously, yes. Now, I don't know which Moses Gene Kelly was thinking of, but according to the passage I just read, the Moses of Scripture did suppose something. That is, he anticipated something. You know what that was? According to verse 5, he anticipated that God would raise up a future prophet and priest greater than himself. And that's precisely what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
And again, think for a Moses. Oh, think for a moment. <laughs> I need the space dictation coach, do I not, right? Think for a moment about who Moses was. As I said, he's the goat of the Old Testament. He's the greatest. But don't take my word for it. Consider what we read in Deuteronomy 34. The book of Deuteronomy closes with Moses' sublime epitaph. Listen to what it says. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, referring to Moses, like Moses. And, and look at this. Whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him. Where have we heard that before? Sent him to do in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. To all Jewish people, Moses was simply the greatest. Right? He's the Michael Jordan. Everybody else is LeBron James. Okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> I'll, I'll just let that one rest. Yet, yet as, as great as, as Moses was, Jesus is greater. And why? Notice the reason given. Although Moses was a great leader, he was just a member of God's house, but Jesus was the builder of God's house. Right? We all know this. The house owes its existence to the builder. And as I hope you see, the house in this passage is a reference to God's people. As John Piper has succinctly stated, Jesus is to the people of God as a builder is to a house. Moses is to the people of God as one of the people of God is to God's household. Therefore, Jesus is Moses' builder. In short, Jesus made Moses. Faith, Jesus is God's reliable builder. For notice how this whole discussion of God's house is bookended by the statement that Jesus is faithful. Do you see it there in verse 2? And then in verse 5? Or rather, verse 6? So you know what this means? It means a lot of things. But for the person who is suffering for their faith, who is struggling in their fight against sin, this truth is a reminder that as believers, they are in good hands. That is the builder of God's people. He is faithful. He's reliable. We can depend on him. Which leads to the, to the final point that I want us to consider. And that is finally consider how Jesus is God's resolute son. Right? Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. And our boasting in our hope. You don't have to say it aloud, but think with me for a moment. What's the difference between a servant and a son? Notice Moses was a servant in the house of God, yet Jesus is a son over the house of God. You know what the difference is? 
The difference is that the son, by inheritance, owns the house and is lord over the house and provides for those in the house out of his wealth. But do servants own anything in the house? No, they simply follow the orders of the owner. So again, Jesus, he's superior. Why? Because as a son, he's better than Moses in, I would say, three ways, according to verse 5 and 6, in that he owns the house of God, he rules the house of God, and he provides for the house of God. Again, we got to read it in light of the context of what we're experiencing, what the, what the readers of Hebrews were experiencing. What good news. Jesus owns me. He's a son. He, he's the one who will provide. And the striking thing here I want you to notice in verse 6, and we're going to talk about this more next week, is how the writer wants us to immediately apply the superiority of Jesus in our lives. Because look at how verse 6 ends. Christ was a faithful, was faithful as a son over the house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. Right? The church of Jesus Christ is God's, is the house of God today. Which means that Jesus this morning, not just back in Moses' day or in his own days on earth, but this morning, Jesus is our maker, our owner, our ruler, our provider. Jesus is the son. We're the servants. We're the household of God. And what a wonderful thing to consider in our moments of need. And then the text concludes by saying, that we are his house, we are his people, we are partakers of heaven and calling if we hold fast. The evidence that we are part of the household of God is that we don't throw away our hope. So Christian, lean in. To close, faith, this passage invites us to consider Jesus and why he is more worthy of glory. It's an invitation to think much of, of God. I love what Spurgeon has said in this matter. Spurgeon once wrote this. He said, he who thinks little of God thinks much of himself. And this text is calling us to do the exact opposite, to not think much of ourselves and little of God, but much of God. Right? It's, it's John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. So this week, my prayer is that we would count Jesus as more worthy than ourselves or anything else this world has to offer. Amen? Let's pray.